Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in bodywork, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Michael Shea. Michael is one of the preeminent educators and authors in the fields of somatic psychology, myofascial release, and cranial sacral therapy. He leads seminars throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Dr. Shea received his master's degree in Buddhist psychology at Naropa University and a doctorate in somatic psychology at the Union Institute. In 1986, he was certified as one of the first full instructors of Upledge's cranial sacral therapy. Dr. Shea has been a Florida licensed massage therapist since 1976, and he was an advanced rolfer for 20 years. He's the founding member of the International Affiliation of Biodynamic Trainings and the Massage Therapy Body of Knowledge Task Force, or NTBOK. Dr. Shea brings a unique cross-cultural perspective to teaching health and healing with a teaching style grounded in a spiritual practice of developing compassion with the use of manual therapy. In today's conversation, we spoke about what brought Michael into massage and body work, how he came to rolfing, how that brought him to cranial work, differences between biodynamic and biomechanic cranial sacral therapy, metabolic issues, and we leave room for a follow-up talk to emerge because there is just so much goodness here. So with that, let's begin our talk. Hi. Hey, Nagy. Hey, Andrew. Where would you like to start? Would you, would you like to start with what brought you into this whole world of, of healing? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm 73, and I, you know, I'm I'm realizing I'm I'm also writing kind of an autobiographical sketch um, of my life. So I, I love talking about it uh, at this point in my life. But so I think um, um, the starting point for a storyline uh, like that, or my storyline, would be uh, that I'm a Vietnam era uh, veteran. Uh, and I came out of uh, the military service in 73 with 100% service-related uh, PTSD disability. And um, I kind of did a U-turn into my future with that. Um, I come from a family of attorneys and, um, you know, really super well-educated people. And uh, I uh, was kind of lost uh, with the whole experience of the military. So, I shipped out as a merchant seaman for a couple of years just to kind of get my bearings back in the United States. And um, and then my sister was living in New York City um, and I knew I had uh, physical problems. And that was that was the start of my journey of discovering my body uh, was in the mid 70s in New York City. Um, I was living in a raw food commune uh, with radical feminists. My sister was a radical feminist. And so they accepted me as a male member of a radical feminist community because <laughs> uh, I was actually non-threatening at the time. I was so dissociated out of my body. But at any rate, they got tired. This is kind of funny. They got tired um, of me just kind of hanging out. And they said, look, you're going to have to pay some rent. And um, we would like to get regular massage 
because that's the thing du jour now in the 70s. Everybody was getting massage, but there just were not a lot of massage therapists around. I said, oh, that'd be great. And they said, we're going to train you. We will train you how to massage us. So I got trained on how to do a professional massage um, in this radical feminist community. And I was doing massages on members of the community, which included my sister and other people. And they said, wow, you're really good at this. Would you like some clients? Do you want to earn some money at this? And I said, yeah. So all of a sudden, within a couple of months, I had a a full practice, never been to school for massage. And I realized I need to go to school. So I went to massage school in Miami, Florida, uh, graduated in 76. Um, and it was a big, long thousand hour program. There were only 12, 12 AMTA, American Massage and Therapy Association um, schools in the United States at that time. And one of them was in Miami. So I went there on the GI Bill, uh, good old Uncle Sam paid the bill. And here's the challenge uh, back then. You have to kind of get your retro head wrapped around this, but there was no continuing education. So you're in a massage school and you're going like, oh, I really like this. You know, people tell me my hands are good and, you know, and I'm starting to earn money. I worked in a beauty salon. Um in Coconut Grove and a really shishi part of Miami uh, doing massage and a lot of house calls. But the point being that there was no continuing ed and I knew I wanted to get continuing ed. So there was only three possibilities. There was going for polarity therapy on Orcas Island off the state of Washington. Uh, there was the Lomi Institute, um, which was a quasi um, body-centered psychotherapy organization in California. Robert Hall was a psychiatrist, and Richard Strozzi Heckler was his cohort. He was a gestalt therapist at the time, but he's still publishing books about uh, body-centered therapy, Richard Strozzi Heckler. Um, and then good old Rolf Institute. So, um, so it was a lot easier to go to Colorado than off the state of uh, 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 to an island off the state of Washington. So at any rate, I got very interested. And of course, you, you know, you had to jump through a lot of hoops back then. So I don't know what it's like now. So the hoops back then were, you got to do 3,000 massages. You had to be a licensed massage therapist. And I had to do 3,000 massages. So, man, I cranked it out because I'm in a military by the numbers. And I, I had my 3,000. Um, and most of it was house calls, Nikki. So that's why when you talk about doing a house call uh, with your mom, I love house calls. I love and I, I did a lot of house calls in Palm Beach because that's where my parents lived at the time. So I was working on all their super duper wealthy friends, um, long hair and a beard, the whole thing. So um, that's how I got interested in uh in the rolfing, it was it was the next evolution. If you were going to have a career in manual therapy back then, that you usually uh, that was one of the stops you could make. And at the same time, yes, Nikki. So at this time, because you started the story of you're looking for continual education, was it were you looking to go for more manual um, body work, or was that just because? I, I would like to just understand that connection of why the manual or was well, it just you're looking for continued education? 
Um, the, well, there are two things. The um, the other type of uh, continuing education or, or workshops. Remember that we're in the era now of this burgeoning field of uh, body centered workshops. And I began taking workshops in Gestalt therapy in Miami. So I got very interested in the psychodynamics of that. And the instructors were very much interested in the cross fertilization of anybody having anything to do with the human body because everybody that had a head on their shoulders knew you got to get out of your head into your body. And so the Gestalt people were very interesting. And I kind of saw it as the merging of the two, which really I thought the Rolf Institute was in that direction because there there was a lot of, um, I should say, discussion about the merging of mind and body at the Rolf Institute. So, so it was, it was about not only continuing ed as a manual therapist, because back then there, I had to get 12 hours a year now to hold my license in the state of Florida. There wasn't anything like that back then. So I just knew I wanted to improve and get better at what I was doing. Cause as you know, in the early days of, of doing manual therapy, it's you, you got it. You want more technique, more technique, give me more technique. I need another workshop and technique, technique. So I was, you know, doing a lot of stuff like that. And Rolfing at the time was like, wow, that's like the uh, that's like the mecca of, of technique and, and body work because it had a 10-step process. You, you can't appreciate the 10-step process just as an unfoldment of, of the Rolf line. It, you have to understand it. It was brilliant marketing. No one else was offering 10 of anything. I mean, you could get 10 massages, but but not a progression that would actually, you know, realign you um, also psychodynamically. So it was, it was very profound. So in the summer of 79, I was accepted. Uh, Ida Rolf had just died. So I'm considered a second generation, she died in March of 79. I'm considered a second generation Rolfer. And I started my training at the Rolf Institute. I had to go through some hoops, you know, the, the interview process out there. Um, and then I started my training and I think I graduated, um, you know, basic training in 1980, uh, the Rolf Institute. Um, who were your teachers? Remember? Uh, oh yeah. 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 I, I consider Peter Melchior to be, uh, my primary mentor. I ended up actually assisting him. He asked me to be an assistant instructor, um, Stacy Mills, who has passed, they both passed away, uh, also asked me to be an assistant instructor. Um, but I thought Peter uh, had the most profound impact on my career. I could never figure out how he did what he did, even though I you know, studied and, and got a lot of work from him. So Peter, um, Emmett Hutchins, uh, I got a lot of work from Emmett. Um, uh, I, there were quite a few people, all the advanced, uh, all the teachers would cycle through Boulder in the early 80s, so and they would be available for sessions. I pretty much had sessions from most of the instructors, but Peter lived in Lyons, and so I, I, I had a personal connection with him. Love him dearly. Um, profound impact on my career. Still, still. He's he's someone. He passed way before I got involved. And having talked to a lot of people from different SI fields, he's someone I wish I had knew more about it and studied with it i've never heard a bad thing said about him other offers for sure but him yeah it was it was a mixed bag so um 
And just to be honest with you, um, and it was it was kind of a startling realization. I graduated, you know, and I was very successful at the time. I had a full practice. Um, I was the first rolfer to have an office on the mall, the mall in Boulder. Um, and after I took my first two or three clients through the 10 step process, I realized I was bored, silly, bored, silly with the repetitive nature of kind of doing the same thing um, that I felt um, I had more creativity and I just didn't know where to express it. And so that's when uh, cranial work came along um, in the early 80s. And John Upledger, uh, I met John Upledger because at every Rolf Institute annual meeting at the time when I was living in Boulder in the early 80s, I was tasked, I volunteered to be the coordinator for whatever the Institute needed, you know, find a place to hold the meeting. Uh, in the case of John Upledger, I was his escort. Um, I got to drive him around. I got, you know, make sure he got everything he needed and wanted. And I got to know him. And and basically a group of rolfers, Charlie Swenson. You know Charlie? Either of you guys? No? Charlie no, Swenson? Name, All, right. All right. He's up in Fort Collins. I'm sure he's still. Well, he used to be one of the original anatomy instructors. But at any rate. So he, he and I took off and, and we we and some others uh, and took the first uh, upledger training. And, and then gradually uh, we started teaching cranial work um, in Boulder at the time. We, we would just take the workshop, come home, offer it and start teaching people. Uh, that was just uh, the style. It's kind of still my style. Take a workshop and teach it. Um, it helped. Were you, were you doing any work with Jim Asher at the time? Because I know that he got really into cranial from the Rolf Institute as well. Oh, yes. Well, um, at the time, um, in order to uh, apply to the Rolf Institute, it was not just 3,000 massages, but I had to get the 10, I had to go through the process. And then I had to get a letter of recommendation. Who was my Rolfer in Miami? Jim Asher. Um, so, and then Jim um, gradually then moved out to Boulder um, and also had a very uh, profound impact on my career because his his hands are like surgeons' hands. I felt like I was, you know, some of these guys, when they get their hands on you, they all have a different quality. And he felt uh, like a surgeon, like he was dissecting my fascia and then reconnecting it. Amazing pair of hands. Mary's amazing pair of hands. Love them. And ironically, he's, uh, it seems to switch because he's now in Boulder on Pearl Street and you're back in Florida. <laughs> Hey, I'm back in Florida growing mango trees. I got 15 mango trees. They're all in blossom right now. Uh, my teaching career, like many people, got cut completely done. Uh, I was mainly teaching in Europe. And so I haven't done an in-class um, class in probably over two years. But I, I've been doing a lot of webinars now. So I still I maintain about 500 students in Europe um, and several hundred students here in the United States. I don't teach a lot in the United States, but I have some students. I've been doing a lot of webinars um, to keep up with things. So, and I do want to get back into the classroom. I do want to get back into the classroom. So, shall we go on again about the past or do we want to? Yeah, no, that's it. Let's pick it up back up. So, the cranial work. And I think that's what I, I think, Nikki, you and I um, had a few moments before we began and we were just talking about, you know, the audience listening to this might um, 
not have cranial training at all. And then and then you get into the, the to the political dynamic of biomechanical, biodynamic, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I then once I learned the upledger work uh, and felt really, really comfortable with it, um, I began doing one or two or three of the moves in the 10 step um, Interesting that the upledger work was a 10-step protocol as well. Um, I started doing that at the, the end of my rolfing sessions. And, and gradually over a period of time, um, it became more and more like half a rolfing session, half a cranial session. And then it evolved into, um, you know, I think what we really need to do here is for you to have this rolfing session and then let's schedule a, a dedicated cranial session. So then I began just doing one and one. And, but all my rolfing um, folks always got a little bit of cranial at the end, for sure. And so I learned a lot about integrating, uh, particularly the upledger work. And the upledger work is just super, super beautiful in its own way, especially with the Atlanto-occipital joint release technology. Um, I, I found that that one technique, what Dr. Becker, the famous cranial osteopath, calls the gateway to the cranium, is that AO joint, that Atlanto-occipital space. And that technology that Upledger um, has passed along and it's been developed um, with the AO joint is exceedingly beneficial, uh, exceedingly beneficial to integrate uh, rolfing sessions neurologically. So... Is that what you would call like holding this like the still point? No, the the still point uh, technology. Um, the the still point is interesting. Historically, the still point within the context of osteopathy. Let's just go to the original uh, source. Within the context of osteopathy, has always been there since the twenties and thirties, and it was really considered to be the 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 spiritual transition. Um, and actually, Dr. Sutherland, the founder of the work, actually called this work very spiritual um, and used many religious terminology, a lot of religious metaphors to describe it. But that um, that AO joint release and then the still point technology where you actually bring the entire cerebrospinal fluid system into a still point um, and you kind of reset the, the triune brain. I, I called it a triune brain reset. That's what I called it the influence on the fourth ventricle of the brainstem, which is where the main target is, so to speak, or the main fulcrum for that still point technology is, um, is very, very valuable because that's the exit point in the fourth ventricle for the cerebral spinal fluid to circulate in the subarachnoid space throughout the brain and spinal cord. So you're having a direct impact with the still point on the entire neurological system. And you can when when that system got into a still point, you could feel something in the, the entire electromagnetic field shift in the room and you could feel the room get still, you could get still. And so that's kind of evolved into a, uh, in biodynamic work, what they call the dynamic stillness in which you go from a more localized perception and palpation of stillness in the fourth ventricle. Um, to a more global perceptual process in involving a panoramic awareness, not only of you and the client, but the room itself, 
And thanks to Dr. Jealous, the founder, uh, I guess you could say he's the founder of, of biodynamic osteopathy, that you then try to extend your perception out into the natural world so that you've got this evenly suspended still attention going all the way out into the natural world. Um, so you can see that on the one end of the spectrum, you've got the still point in the fourth ventricle. And then at the other end of this, this beautiful spectrum of experience uh, and perception, this feeling of, of stillness that goes out to the horizon. And, and just to say, uh, this is incredibly, um, I don't like the word healing. Curative is also a very charming word, but um, this is also very helpful um, just in the sense that what we know now about the biology of the human body is that, let's say the endothelium of the vascular system is made up of what are called quiescent cells, quiescent cells. These are cells that have very low um, dynamic activity. So we could say that they're dynamically still um, cells. And we also know from research literature that every single molecule in the human body has to go through a still point in order to transform and, and, and go through its, its functional change in whatever um, vector it might be going in terms of growth and development in, in that level of cell biology. So just to say that this dynamic stillness is not woo-woo, um, this is really extremely helpful at the molecular um, metabolic level within the human body and at the, at the cell biology level, especially with the contemporary client. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's always okay. nice, I think, with our work that that there is some kind of science support because some of the critics out there like to think of this work as woo-woo and we're just pretending to do something <laughs> well. <laughs> so I thank you for that little little science nugget. Well, I, and I think you all know you know, that there's a lot of science now uh, regarding the fascia of the body and, you know, all the work that um, your comrade Robert Schleip uh, has done in, in Germany. And I still um, I still stay up with the fascial research because I still work with European osteopaths and I still take tutorials um, from one osteopath in particular who merges the worlds of cranial work and, and myofascial work. And he's also actually, is he Wolfer? I think he is. Jörg Scherpf is his name. He's also a French osteopath. But at any rate, um, so I like to stay up, you know, with that fascial literature. Um, and the advent of these international fascial congresses that started happening seven or eight years ago. Um, and that's when the, the manual therapy community um, in the United States uh, were told by the National Institutes of Health, that if, if you folks in the manual therapy community want to get the support of the scientific community, you're going to have to prove scientifically the mechanisms of interaction when you have your hands on someone and a change process occurs in their body. And that's what gave birth to those international fascial congresses so that there became a lot of, of interest and that's why the fascial work, one of the many reasons why it's it's exceedingly important uh, is because of that science between the, the interaction of how change process occurs that we claim 
you know, as body workers. Um, and, and then the conservative folks say, prove it. So, yep, that's all very true. And also, I feel like, um, yeah, the work with the, the fascial research and not to, you know, go off topic a lot, but I think this does re- resonate with the with the recent publications of more somatic therapy movement, like um, the body keeps score that was written by clinicians and just giving more support that our bodies are more than just a bag of bones and fluid and moves us around the world, that there's a much deeper, richer experience in this body. And there's, it's just not the, although I think the Western medicine is amazing and does a lot of great work, that there is a lot of, in the healing arts that we are doing good work and helping people find health and wellness in their bodies, even if it can't be completely boiled down to the scientific methods that have been highlighted in the last, I don't know, century. Yeah. I, well, Nikki, I agree with you. I, I mean, I read research, you know, that's just a, you know, like a hobby of mine, but, um, but when you get in the clinical room, research really doesn't mean anything when you have your hands on a client, because it's, it's about having some sense of unconditional presence. It has some sense of creating safety, um, you know, for their nervous system to be able to respond. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, whole, it's a whole bigger you know, picture that we have to deal with as clinicians in the room. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah. Well, now I think that's a good little launching bridge to what so up ledger please correct me if i'm wrong um up ledger cranial sacral work is a little bit more mechanical more of tools and set skills where then biodynamic is what <laughs> thank you I, nikki that's great and biodynamic is what so uh so I think, um, you know, for the listener, um, it's important to have an understanding of just what the word means. I remember offering a workshop down here, biodynamic something or other, and one of the upledger people came in and they said, well, we don't understand a word of what you said in your flyer. Um, biodynamic um, is a term that specifically in this world of our, of our body refers to human embryology. And it refers to a branch of embryology called morphology. So the morphology um, of Eric Blechschmidt. So um, my mentor, Jim Jealous, back in the mid-90s when I went for my doctor, my doctorate, and it was a rolfer, Chris Key, said, you got to get your doctorate. So, and I did. Uh, and I studied a lot um, around that. And I wanted to get clear on the biodynamic thing because by then, this reputation of biodynamics in the in the mid '90s was starting to permeate the culture. Um, my brother Brian, uh, who also was a rolfer and now he's a cranial osteopath in uh, in Boulder, uh, was was telling me about Jim Jealous, and so I had an opportunity in my doctor work to study with Jim Jealous, and he said something to me interesting. He said, "I don't usually work with non osteopaths." Um, 
However, um, I'm willing to, to mentor you around the embryology. And then he said, I have one condition. He said, you have to give up teaching the upledger work. You have to give up teaching any of the, the mechanical work. And, and I, I asked him why. And he said, you've got to understand that, that to do the mechanical work in our profession as osteopaths requires years and years of training and knowledge of osteopathic manipulative therapy and, and a really more thorough understanding of neuroanatomy and, and neurophysiology and so forth. And he said that in the 90s, the osteopaths were tired of getting patients that were they were having to treat from the side effects of people having learned um, the mechanical work. And I mean, I, I took that um, and I said, sure. So I stopped teaching um, the mechanical work at the time. And he taught me how to feel the longer tide that Sutherland identified as the tide. So the different styles of cranial work are associated with your perception of movement, whether it's fast, medium, slow, or slow. So your initial entry point into this education is about your perception of a global movement pattern. And in the case of mechanical work, it's very fast. Um, in the case of some styles of biodynamics, it's called the mid-tide, it's kind of medium-slow, um, which is more plugged into uh, trauma and stress release. And then you have the long, slow tide or the tide. And, and Dr. Jealous called it primary respiration. And so I, I learned um, how to perceive primary respiration as a, as a dynamic happening in the natural world as well as the human body. So, so there was that level of, of palpation and perception, but the theory behind it had to do with human embryology. And I also had studied um, medical anthropology and cultural anthropology um, in my doctoral work and was very fascinated with it. And it turns out um, that the terminology that Jealous was using is that when you touch the client, you come into a relationship with their originality, their sense of origin. From the point of view uh, in osteopathy that you can't fix someone, well, actually, no, in one school of osteopathy, uh, in the mechanical school, you know, we was, and Baral said it, find it, fix it, leave it alone. I love Baral. And find it, fix it, leave it alone. And that's that's valid. I'm not, you know, please, listeners, I'm not um, putting that down. This is, we have to have the ability to move our perception between different levels of understanding. And sometimes the find it, fix it, leave it alone is very, very curative and helpful. And sometimes it creates side effects. And so in osteopathy, you, you learn how to, to treat side effects first. But in, in the biodynamic method, you learn that primary respiration was present at the moment of conception, that there are embryonic forces that are discussed in Bletchmitt's book called biodynamic and biokinetic differentiations in human development. And a co-author was Raymond Gasser. And before he died, I interviewed him and published his interviews. I published everything that he published about the human embryo. Because I, 
I threw myself at the embryology. I became an academic embryologist. I taught uh, human embryology to the PhD students in somatic psychology and pre and perinatal psychology at the Santa Barbara Graduate Institute, just, you know, as a side. But I always teach embryology in any of the, the cranial classes I teach. And the sense is that in cultural anthropology, knowing that you couldn't really fix someone on the spot, that you had to create a dynamic in which they could touch their original, uh, their originality, which means when they were originally whole and when you are conceived as a single-celled human being, that is a moment of original wholeness, unlike any other species. Uh, think about it, a single-celled human being, and that, that there's an intention within the biodynamic work that we touch that in order to touch that undifferentiated wholeness, and then we, from there, build forward. And the, the tricky part is this is not a regressive act. So we're not regressing someone into an emotional dynamic about their embryo uh, or, or what they may have experienced, all of which may be valid. But primary respiration doesn't really care about that. It has its own intelligence and its own seeking of originality and how it organizes the whole. And consequently, in let's say, and I'm not in the mechanical worker, actually in my original experience of practicing and treating, the end point of the treatment was to help a person feel whole and connected, right? Makes sense, you know, beautiful as an end point. What Jealous was saying to me is, Michael, that's the beginning point of a treatment. You don't end there. You have to begin there. You have to begin with your perception and your, your palpation process with an intention that wholeness is already present. And that wholeness then is expressed through the movement of primary respiration and its rhythmic interchange with the dynamic stillness that goes all the way out to the horizon. And this is a, a real living phenomenological experience that you can have. So the embryology becomes important because you, you learn then what the human body was before it got into all these orthopedic challenges or whatever the challenges that the contemporary client might be facing. And I want to, I want to address that, but not right now. I got a lot to say about that, but nonetheless, that, that sense of original wholeness and contacting that level of movement that gel is called primary respiration and the interchange with stillness it is the exciting dynamic um, of connecting someone, as Jealous said, that wholeness is the smallest subdivision of life. Wholeness is the smallest subdivision of life. And can you start your treatment that way with your you as a therapist being in that state of wholeness? However, it is you do that, um, because there's a thousand spiritual aptitudes um, and at least 500 workshops on, on learning how to be whole. I've taken 200 uh, or maybe 300. So that sense of wholeness. And then and then when you have your hands on your client, how do you how do you perceive their wholeness initially? And so there's there's language and there's methodology in the biodynamic world in order for that perception to, to happen. And again, it's coded language and all these metaphors and, and all of that. Um, 
which we don't need to get into right now. I'm just kind of giving you theory. Yeah, it's great. One way that I've, in the last few years, I've said the differences is not as eloquent as yours, but essentially my understanding is biomechanics is a bit of doing too, and biodynamics is a bit of being with. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think, you know, spiritually, you know, we all want to practice, you know, non-duality. Um, and, and yet we, we also have to know therapeutically that we can't merge with the client. But the truth is, the literature says in terms of interpersonal neurobiology and what's called the, the literature on interpersonal cardiovascular systems, we're already merged. We are already connected. We have clusters of neurons that are firing, that are, are telling us exactly what's going on in the client. We have a, an entire vascular system that's already wired into the client. We can access information about the client if we can access our body. So I developed a, what's called the cycle of attunement um, and, and the practice of attention based on the, the principles of interpersonal neurobiology. So, and that is that we, we start with the wholeness, but then when we have our hands on the client, we move our attention towards our hands and you have to move your attention away from your hands. I'm sorry, that's the way the autonomic nervous system works, folks. And I caught a lot of pushback in the early days when I was teaching this because there was they people were saying, well, you're teaching people to abandon your client. No, 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 we're, we're already connected. I'm staying present here in the room, in the body. I'm here. I'm sensing my own body. I'm using my visual sense to go out the window and, and sense what might be going on in the environment, coming back in. If I hear bird song, I, I go out, I listen to the birds. That's very important because Dr. Jealous said you have to invite the natural world into the treatment room so that the natural world can participate in the treatment. I think that was one of the most profound paradigm shifting for the biodynamic model that, that he made. And so I always move my attention out to the world of nature and back. Um, it's just super critical in that whole dynamic. Correct me if I'm, if I'm incorrect. When you're going out there, you're still staying in there. Correct. Right? So the perception is you're still with your hands. You're, yeah, yeah, exactly. If, if, it's, if it's helpful for you just to sort of know, um, one of my teachers at the Ralph Institute had taught us basics of that. So that was brought into um, right. Ray McCall would teach us aspects of that with it, within it. So it helped me as I started to go into biodynamics that thought helped me really progress along the way. There is a progress. How lucky, how lucky you were to have Ray McCall as a teacher. He was my best friend in Boulder for, for years before I moved. Yeah, I understand he's retired now in Southern Colorado, but um, at any rate, the, the cycle of attunement is critical because it's, it's called evenly suspended attention. You don't, you, you, if we were going to, make a theory about this, we would say that you leave 10% of units of awareness in your hand, 10% units of awareness in your breathing. So you're, you're dividing your attention in order to create a whole, in order to create the possibility of a whole, and you're not leaving any of it behind. 
And, and yes, we all have minds. And in the middle of a session, more than once, we, I call it my Amazon mind. What I do is I, uh, I try to figure out what I want to buy on Amazon that week. And if I'm bored, uh, sometimes in a session, I'll just start trying to figure out, hmm, should I get that book that I've been jonesing about for the last two weeks as if I need another book stacked on my bookshelf? So the other critical thing here is that we have to know something about our state of mind. We have to have some mindfulness discipline. I don't like the word mindfulness anymore. I think it's overused. Um, we've had 10 years of it. I think we need to let it go. Um, but it's a useful term uh, in terms of how we pay attention to our inner state of mind uh, and then how we interrupt our attention when it's been captured by Amazon or uh, a dispute we're having at home or you know some dynamic that our mind just takes us completely out of the treatment room. So there has to be some way in which we return from what is called attention capture. Our attention has been captured. And so that cycle of attunement is, is a constant dynamic until there's a settling and you feel this evenly suspended attention. So it's, it's something that you do initially to begin a session and then periodically if you find yourself uh, lost in thought uh, in the past or future uh, in a session. I really have been appreciating this, like coming back to our innate wholeness. Um, I just recently listened to to this uh, woman. What's her name? Rachel. I just had her pulled up. Oh goodness! It was a guest on Body Talk, and but basically, this woman named Rachel is a. She worked at the Smithsonian Anthropology something, and um. But basically, she just wrote she wrote a book about um, the vagina, and it's more of a woman's book. But it was going back to from the very beginning in terms of embryology, like our wholeness. Like we weren't even defined as men or gender, female, male yet. Like this uniqueness of us just being whole without all our divisions that make us unique and differentiate us but I think that's just it's just a nice reminder of as us as human beings that we all are from our original state are of this unique wholeness and that however gender we come out skin color all that that's just the way we kind of it shook out not being dismissive of all the cultural implications that have happened by our differences. You know, right. of course there's like lots of harm that's been done to, to all uh, populations off of their gender or, or their, um, however they're classified and gender, color, nationality. Um, but if we can kind of come back to, and I think this is what, what you're speaking to with the biodynamic of the, 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 oh goodness, what did you call it? First, the primary respiration yep. is meeting that energy level of when we were in our very unique primary wholeness, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I think, and there's a lot of, 
I think it's just a, it's important because we, we don't think of that. And we just kind of think of like how we, and I even think to some degree, like our birth stories aren't really much of our considered of who we are as much as they should be much less what we were before we started subdividing and all of the different mix-ups that our parents have given us that shapes our uh, shapes us and that we yeah. came as our own little unique little person <laughs> before we were all divided <laughs> yeah you know, and, and just the incredible luck that we have just sitting here that we made it this far. I was I was telling uh, my staff at lunch today um, about the four reminders in Buddhism and that the first, you know, because we're we're dealing with this this new fear of the Russian you know, Ukrainian thing. And and I was just mentioning how uh, important it is that we have some sense of spiritual grounding um, and, and connection uh, as as a sense of medicine, actually, um, spiritual practice is medicine and just exceedingly important in, in that that domain. And I forgot there was a thread I was going to um, mention and just went in one neuron and out the other based on what you said, Nikki. But if it comes back to me, I'll, I'll get to it. Well, and so I perfect kind of launch into a little bit what I've learned about you and your work is. So yes, you have this wealth of information, and but you you're meeting it or there there you're bringing it on with some spirituality or heart sense, right? Like it's just not all things that you've been learning in the workshop and techniques and this and that that there's. Uh, a, a real spirituality whether and I'm assuming it's like obviously non-denominational but there is this other spiritual realm that is of use to connect and meet the client needs well let me let me back up um so I can um kind of merge into that discussion um uh Another uh, Rolfer friend of mine uh, just published a book uh, this past year. Um, it's called Breathing Mudras and Meridians, Direct Experience of Embodiment by Bill Harvey. Um, and I wrote the foreword to it. And and then Bill, um, he wrote the foreword to my book. I sent that, uh, I think, to you all. It's coming out in the fall. All right. And. It's about the biodynamics of the immune system, but the subtitle is, is balancing and harmonizing the energies with the cosmos. So I think it would be important to, to get a sense of, of what that means. So in anthropology, um, and we were talking about fixing and healing and curing and, and all of that, but in anthropology, there was only two rituals. When somebody was really that ill, because all illness was considered spiritual illness, that there was a progressive loss of connection to the natural world. There was a progressive loss of connection to the community that they lived in. Uh, there was a, a progressive loss of connection to their body and finally their mind. And so there were rituals set up so that you could um, you could go back, not go back, but you could set up a dynamic where they could touch their originality, as I said, and their embryonic nature. 
But the contemporary client has a major, major problem right now. And I think I want both of you to know it. And I, and I think I want the audience here to know it. Uh, my sister, Sheila Shea, who runs the Intestinal Health Institute in Tucson, Arizona, she and I wrote a book seven or eight years ago. And unfortunately, it got rejected in the copy editing process. I don't know what freaked out the publisher. Um, and we still don't know, but that's all right. It, that information's in my new book. And here's the situation with the contemporary client. Um, and I'll try to weave all this together. In 2018, so that's not too long ago, that's like three years ago, the University of North Carolina announced that 88%, so eight, eight, 88% of Americans were metabolically unhealthy. And we know from the, the COVID thing um, that the comorbidity is metabolic syndrome, that the majority of people that die from this also had obesity or type two diabetes. These are all metabolic conditions indicating metabolic ill health. And in, in talking with my sister because of COVID now, and we see that, that people still continue to degenerate, there's, there's no focus on, on how to work with this other than um, medications and so forth, that we probably have well over 90 or 95% of our clients are metabolically unhealthy. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, um, without getting into that, I mean, my book speaks to a lot of the, you know, how you work with that, but the spiritual component uh, becomes very important. And by that, I mean, the other ritual that is done in cultural anthropology and healing rituals, and I, and I actually apprenticed on the Navajo reservation for over 10 years. So I'm, I'm familiar with these types of rituals, um, and they can go on for a long time, seven, eight, nine days. The other type of ritual is not to regress the client to their time of undifferentiated wholeness as an embryo, but because of what's happening with the contemporary client right now, and that these metabolic conditions are passed down to us transgenerationally as transgenerational imprinting uh, on our epigenome, that the ritual required is to take the client back to the moment of the conception of the universe. So it involves a cosmological perspective. And all, and so I, I did a lot of study of creation mythologies. Um, and the creation mythologies um, being super important because, as I said, you're either going to experience your embryo or you, or if you're if you're that ill, you've got to have someone help you uh, go back to the origin of the universe. Because that's how far back you, you need to go in order to recover your wholeness, the entire universe. Think about that. I mean, Jealous was right. Wholeness is the smallest subdivision of life. And wholeness would include the entire universe, wouldn't it? Of course. I, I mean, it, logically, that makes sense. So it means that within any methodology, healing methodology, and let's say biodynamics, because that's that's what Bill and I are up to right now. We're, we're trying to move the embryological perspective, not eliminate it. You still need that because somebody you still have to be conceived in your original wholeness. But you, you have to also have a sense of that cosmological perspective. And then the question is, well, how in, in the Lord do you integrate that into a clinical session? 
So, and that's the spiritual perspective. Okay, that's the spiritual perspective because it just means that in the context of cranial work, so we're talking about cranial work, Dr. Sutherland in 1943 said that you could definitely consider the cranial concept as it was known in the 40s as spiritual in nature. He actually used the word religion, that it was religious in nature. The primary metaphor that Dr. Sutherland used for primary respiration was the breath of life. And the entire tradition of osteopathy uh, originated out of a very devout sense of Christianity from Andrew Taylor Still. Um, beautiful quotes by him, but we see that within the cranial model that the cosmological perspective was already present. Dr. Sutherland mentioned the term, the breath of life, 17 times. Dr. Jealous uh, also uh, was very eloquent uh, before he died last year, actually almost a year ago, um, about the breath of life being the dynamic uh, associated with or a level of primary respiration that would tune us into that cosmological perspective so that it was already innate. It was already built in within the dynamic. And dynamic stillness turns out to be the void at the ending of the previous universe. So Dr. Jealous was using the term void as the deepest level of the dynamic stillness. And I've had many clients and myself included that upon receiving a session, a biodynamic session, I feel as if I've accessed the void, a complete ending of the previous universe and the not yet beginning of this universe that we live in right now, the not yet beginning, the spontaneous beginning. So we already have built within the metaphors and methodology, um, the language of biodynamic osteopathy, biodynamic craniosacral therapy, the terminology associated with a cosmology, it's already present, it's already present. And in order to access that, um, one would say uh, what Bill Harvey calls it in spiritment, that, that it's Bill and I don't like the word embodiment anymore, although, you know, we need to use it because it's out there, but it's about incorporation of spirit. It's about the, the thing that, that everybody, um, <laughs> okay, maybe not everybody, but at least, you know, all of us here, we're talking about wholeness. And what does that mean in our methodology? Mind, body, spirit, okay? So in my new book, I, I try to define the word spirit from a number of different perspectives. And I think for me, it's just really, how do you have a direct experience of sacredness, of an inner power? Um, or it's okay if you're atheistic, that's, that's not the issue. The issue is a direct experience without any intermediary, without priests, priestesses, any of those folks, you, we have the capacity for direct experience of our own sacredness, of our own divinity, whatever language you want to mean or talk about. And, and that is how uh, one of the definitions of spirituality. So consequently, if I come into a session and the dynamic stillness, that's what I'm going for. I'm going for dynamic stillness first because that's the void. 
And then something has to initiate the beginning of the universe. There has to be a spark, okay? And in in cosmological uh, or astrogeophysics, it's called the Big Bang. But that comes about from a spark from primary respiration. Now, I know the audience listening to this is probably, well, that's a big stretch for me right now. But um, <laughs> but remember, we're just, we're, we're trying to come into a perception of non-referential awareness. Wholeness is non-referential awareness. Wholeness is non-dual awareness, okay? So this is a panoramic awareness that, that does not involve thought. And within that context, there's a movement, whether it's the move, everything that moves in the human body, even our thoughts, is moved by the wind element um, in the East. So Bill's book and my book begins to integrate an understanding of the body from the five element point of view and then from the cosmological point of view in order to begin engaging within um, helping people with metabolic problems. And it turns out that the five elements uh, in my book, I'm going to relate the five elements to the cosmology of tantric Buddhism, uh, and particularly the, the Dzogchen tradition, in which the five elements originally were the five lights, and the five lights were, were the appearance of the enlightened state of mind. And, and there's a lot of metaphors for that, but the enlightened state of mind at its deepest level is the element of space in the Sino, or no, in the Indo-Tibetan tradition. So I'm kind of rambling on here, but the idea is that as, as wild as these ideas might sound, they're already present. Um, they are available as direct perception. Um, if anybody tells you that they're not available as direct perception, don't believe them. Um, you've got to find this yourself. And once you have these perceptual processes, you won't go back. Once I perceived primary respiration, uh, that was the last time um, I ever did. Um, well, that's not true. I was going to say the last time I did mechanical work, but I always, um, if mechanical work is needed, I've got that in my toolkit and I use it. So I just, it wasn't the primary thing I, I began to teach. So there's a cosmology, a spiritual cosmology built within the cranial model. It's present already. It's now just being enhanced um, through the work of Bill Harvey, myself, and many others. I just got an email yesterday of a new book on, on osteopathy about the spiritual component of osteopathy by uh, the author's name is Friedman, I think. So this is the time we live in. This is the time we live in. And, and by that, I mean, with COVID, uh, with all of that that goes on, and for me, already knowing that metabolic syndrome was present in the majority of clients. So everything that happened with COVID made perfect sense to me in terms of the amount of deaths and all that, that it's time that we double down on our spiritual practice in order to feel whole. So as the Dalai Lama says, there's a thousand spiritual aptitudes. So whatever your aptitude is for having a direct experience of your own wholeness, and if you don't like the metaphor of spirituality, don't use it. Uh, we can we can still use wholeness, but 
Let me pause for a minute because that was a kind of a mouthful. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, I should say. And there's one, I guess it's a little semantical, but it's also not, is that you were mentioning how once you kind of touch into that that non-duality, there's like, I uh, forget the words you said, I had it in my mind about um, not going back. But I, I think it's not that there's, it, it's about you can't go back. It's not that like you won't go back. It's It's really... Once you understand that other framework, ticket doors open that you can never close that door again. It's already busted down, and to try to go back into that is is impossible because you've you've seen through the. Unfortunately, I think metaphors come really helpful because the experience themselves, the words don't actually do the experience, and the metaphor helps build up the the visceral recognition of the idea to an extent. Uh, so I apologize for using metaphors there as well. I'm also I'm super interested in the the book you shared because a little background about me uh, I when I'm I'm certified as a yoga therapist and one part of my yoga therapy was really into mudras and I actually didn't like mudras which is why I studied in that school to learn more about it and I started teaching mudras as a tool for embodiment and so I'm actually super interested to maybe connect later on with Bill Harvey because it sounds very much aligned with my own my own sort of practice as well. Oh yeah, that's I'm, that's why um, you know Bill and I are, are are trying to move you know the whole thing forward in terms of the contemporary client, and so um, yeah, we're in constant contact. It's a it's a it's just a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. So um, and he's he's really an expert in mudras as well. So uh, if you don't have his information, I can send that to you in an email when we're all finished. I just wanted yeah, to rewind a little bit about um, how you started saying the contemporary person has, you know, we're dealing with a lot of metabolic issues in that how we got to look at, you know, the intergenerational ramifications that led to us to get here. So is that, so I'm kind of in my own brain trying to negotiate with what it seemed like what you were saying is that we're kind of, we're destined for these metabolic issues. Is that what you're saying in some ways? Well, so how does that align with that? The body is set up to orient to health. I kind of believe that I kind of don't because I feel like that's kind of a, a tough saying to say to somebody who entered into this world with not the with all the with all the parts and functions that is desired do you know what i'm asking or do i sound confusing no 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 that's that's um again it's a beautiful conversation you know andrew taylor still the founder of osteopathy um said quote find the health anyone can find disease and so consequently, you know, over the last hundred years, uh, especially in osteopathy in general, there's been a lot of discussion on what is the health with a capital H. So I, I get into that a lot uh, in my book uh, that's coming out this fall. And I think um, the simplicity of it is uh, really uh, profound for me. And that is Dr. Jealous said that the health is the potency of primary respiration that if you're starting a session with the intention to feel your wholeness 
and to recognize the wholeness of the client, then what's the endpoint going to be of a session? Well, the endpoint is going to be where the health, which we are now directly associating with the rhythmic balanced interchange of dynamic stillness and primary respiration as a pervasive, um, palpable perception that permeates both of us and, and the world, then we have the capacity to feel the different nuances and the different levels within that. So if we call it the wind element or whatever it is, that there's, there's all these different elements associated with it. And one of the big deals in osteopathy was the term potency, potency. So basically what Jealous is saying is that at the end of a session and you're rhythmically tuning into the perception of primary respiration and its interchange with stillness is that you'll feel the potency shift. And let me give the, let me give you all an example and, and the, um, the listeners out there. So, my mother was in a, a in a nursing home for 10 years. It was actually a terminal unit. Um, she was supposed to be dead in six months, and she lasted 10 years, which means I got really great genes. I thank my mother for that. Amazing genes that you put up with everything you put up with for that amount of time. But it meant that all of her roommates were terminal. And it was very painful for me sitting with my mother, seeing someone terminal suffering in the bed, uh, one foot in back of my chair. So I got permission um, from the, the nursing staff at the nursing station. I could put my hands on, on, on them. And what I realized then is what primary respiration, the potency of primary respiration feels like when somebody is near death, um, what primary respiration feels like in its potency when someone is in a, a coma and not expected to recover and what it feels like if they can recover. And I made the mistake one time of telling the family system, oh, oh, she'll be fine. She's going to come out of this. And like two hours later, this woman who had been in an extremely traumatic automobile accident and was expected to die that day popped out of it um, and was, was fine after a certain amount of therapy and all that. So it's really being able to tune into not just a single thing called the breath of life or a single thing called, you know, primary respiration, but that there are nuances and there's potency um, associated with those different levels. And that a sense of vitality, um, a sense of reverie um, within, within the body um, are other metaphors you could use for that sense of potency, but some sense of that potency increasing within the field of primary respiration and stillness. So that's the practical aspect uh, of that, of, of your question. I think. I, I, have a, <laughs> I have a quick question on that, but I also know, Nikki, we have like five minutes before you have to hop off. And so I'm wondering if maybe having a second call at another point might might be helpful because there's more we can we can talk about so i'll ask my question and then i'll see if it seems like it can be answered quickly which is and you can always say no i'm okay i hear no all the time i'm married i get it if this potency this is something where i've been struggling and this is really more personal is the potency would you say the potency is the parasympathetic and the the the, the autonomic nervous system 
Like, is that what you are feeling when you're feeling potency? Is the the autonomic nervous system or the parasympathetics in particular, or am I way off? Um, I no, I think you're you're right on that the the autonomic nervous system would be um, absolutely involved in it. And what people fail to realize, because um, fail to realize, what people need to understand is um, the original design function of the autonomic nervous system sympathetically was for joy. The attachment literature with mothers bonding with babies is about joy in terms of face-to-face interactions with the sympathetic nervous system. That's how it's built. And the parasympathetic nervous system is built on just a very deep happiness and bliss. But we all are living, and myself included, in this default state called stress and alarm states and, and trauma and all that. So that potency is a potency of joy. It's a potency. And I've heard many clients say, oh, my God, I felt love streaming through my body. Oh, my goodness, I felt the movement of grace descending through, you know, the center of my body, you know, their midline and so forth. So that potency really has to do with how we experience deeper levels of the autonomic nervous system, but not limited to the autonomic nervous system. Obviously, there would be other other dynamics that that we could talk about. If you're open to um, talking with us again, I think that's a great little lead in to the next potential topic that um, I heard you speak about on a previous podcast of how you're kind of bridging your knowledge with the polyvagal theory. And um, our next guest is Dr. Forges. So I think you could be a fun follow up. Well, that'd be great. Um, Stephen is a great guy. Um, As you know, or may not know, he was on the original Rolf Institute Research Committee. Um, he yep. loves he loves us manual therapists, um, and I've had a lot of conversations with him. Please give him my fondest regards. Um, he and I have been on the dais together before at different conferences. So, and yes, I'd love to talk about the um, yeah the, the multivagal system. I talk about it mainly from the perspective of uh, the gut, um, which I think is I mean. You know, we're talking with what the, what, what were the, the contemporary person with the um, metabolic issues goes hand in hand with everybody with their gut issues, and I think I think that would, I think it's I think it's a great a great conversation we can have. Yeah, because that gets into the nuts and bolts of you know what is meta what are the metabolic problems and and where are they and the need for um, making contact with. The intestines, um, the abdominal cavity, um, in almost every session. So, and I've got a lot to say about that because I've developed a lot of protocols around that. So, let's do another conversation. I'd love to have that that conversation, and we could do. Yeah, it I, I think it sounds great. I think unfortunately we didn't didn't realize how great a uh, a person you were to talk with. So we <laughs> we didn't plan uh, enough time that it's uh, really <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> Well, you're very kind. Thank you. Both of you are very kind. But, um, you know, it's it's there's a lot of information and I I really feel committed to getting it out. Um, I I feel committed to getting, you know, this book out and Bill's book out. Again, I want to just say the contemporary client is a mess. It is a mess. Um, 
And especially so, now with like after yeah. being in lockdown and it's, I mean, I was happy to go into lockdown if that's meant to what we need to do. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist around COVID, but um, yeah, it's situational that we're, you know, I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm actually, I have to go because I'm seeing a client. Yeah. We'll set up on the time. I'm just grateful for your time. Yeah. 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 Stay in touch, you know, over the next couple of months and uh, give my regards to Stephen. Great guy. Great guy. Good. Great. Thank Thank you you so much. You guys are great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, you too. Bye. Listen to us at Touching to Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Michael at shayhart.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review on the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation and touching into presence. Bye-bye.